Good morning, everyone. So great to see you. So just a point of clarification on the singing. So the new rules are that we have two square meter rule if over 25, and then when you're in a room singing or singing, so you're supposed to wear a mask. So masked if singing or not singing in a room where there is singing, unless you're one of the, uh, what do they say? They're called performers. We know they're not performing, they're leading us in worship, but just so you know, that's the current uh, restrictions. And thanks for your help in, in, in just following them. It's a blessing to honor God and to be able to sing together and to uh, honor him with song. So we'll be in Hebrews chapter 4, and let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit who moves in our midst, who quickens us to praise you, who opens our eyes to see how awesome you are. And Thank you for the light of the world, Jesus Christ, who's come, who has made a way of salvation for us, who's given forgiveness and hope and uh, eternal rest by your grace. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for this place where we can gather and for the health you've given us. And we do pray for those who are unwell, those who are unable to join today. We pray that you would bless them, you would minister your truth to their hearts, and that we would be in fellowship with you and one another as we follow Jesus. And thank you again, Lord, for uh, just the ability to sing to you, the opportunity to lift up our voices as one, to praise you, and because you're worthy. You're worthy of honor, and, and you created us to worship you, and how good it is to be able to do so in spirit and in truth, whether we're in this place or wherever you lead us, Lord. You never leave or forsake us, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. It was in 1974, there was a story, maybe some of you remember it, of that Japanese intelligence officer living in the jungle in the Philippines who was unaware that the war had ended in 1945. Leaflets were dropped, family photos were dropped, but it was seen as a trick. Uh, this this uh, survivor, Hiro Onoda, he evaded capture, he survived, he scrounged for food, he only surrendered his sword after his commanding officers went to the Philippines and in person freed him from his orders. And he said, I'm a really competitive person. I'm like, well, that's really competitive. Uh, he was like, this is my job, and I'm going to do it until I said I'm going to do it, and until I'm formally released, I'm going to continue. And he wrote this book called No Surrender, My 30-Year War. Can you imagine fighting a war for 30 years that was over? The war's over, but you're still plotting. You're still on high alert. You're still following your orders. The nations are rebuilding. The nations are recovering, and he's still fighting. There was rest from the war for this loyal and competitive man, but he neglected to enter it. And we can do the same thing as Christians. We can try to be fighting wars in the flesh that Jesus Christ has already won. He's declared the victory, and we can just be fighting that guerrilla warfare, like everything's against us when God is for us, when Jesus has said, it is finished. So in Hebrews 4, 
We, uh, it's our passage for today. The previous chapter, it showed the supremacy of Jesus over Moses. God called Moses my servant, but he called Jesus my son. And the example of the children of Israel falling to their deaths in the wilderness short of the promised land was an example that we too not fall short of the rest that God has for us through faith in Christ. Moses led the Hebrews out of Egypt. It was Joshua who led them in to the promised land. God gave the law through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. And this warning against a heart of unbelief that leads to departing from the living God, it moves us to be coming to him in faith and obedience. So today, that's the day of salvation. Today is the day to draw near to God. It's also a day of rest for us. And you don't need a Sabbath to have rest because Christ is our Sabbath. He is our rest. We can enter into rest with him right now because of what he's accomplished. Hebrews 4, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Verse 1 follows the conclusion of the previous chapter in Hebrews 3.19 concerning the children of Israel that fell in the wilderness. It says, So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. It wasn't for lack of effort. It wasn't because they weren't sure exactly where the promised land was. They were right on the doorstep. It wasn't because of intent, lack of intent. They fought to enter. But because they would not enter, they could not enter. And God swore in his wrath, they will not enter my rest. They questioned if God was with them or not. They accused him of bringing them out of Egypt to kill them in the wilderness. In self-pity, they sought to raise up another leader and return to Egypt in bondage. And God did not just give the Israelites a promise of rest, but there's a rest for God's people to enter into today. And remember, this book was written to the Hebrews, to Christian Jews who knew the law, they, know, they knew what had happened to their forebears who fell in the wilderness. That there is a rest that is real you can have today through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the message that we should get from this. And the writer says it should be alarming to us. It should alarm you that God has a rest for you that you have neglected to enter. You have failed to enter. Again, Canaan's not to be equated with heaven or eternal salvation, it's, a, it's like a life marked with victory and fruitfulness and rest and abundance. God had given each tribe and family a stewardship over a plot of land. They were to, uh, to plant and water, and he was giving them homes they didn't build and vineyards they didn't plant and wells they didn't dig. And they were to rejoice in God's provision, to worship him, to appear before him in the tabernacle, because that's where God's presence would be. And it was all there. So God had arranged this place for them to have fellowship with him, to rejoice in his provision, to, and look to him for strength to drive out enemies. Verse 2, it says, ignorance of God's promise was not the issue. While they were in Egypt, God promised to bring them out of affliction into a land flowing with milk and honey. After Moses and Aaron spoke to the people, we see their response 
in Exodus 4.31. So the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked on their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshiped. When Moses came to the people and said, God's met with me, this is what he's going to do. He's going to free you from bondage. He's going to bring you into this promised land. The people's response was not one of unbelief. They believed. They heard. They bowed their heads and worshiped God because of what he would accomplish. They left Egypt. The presence of God went before them. He did make a highway through the Red Sea through which they passed. They came right to the edge of the promised land and they faltered in unbelief. They were unwilling to enter in. So the same people who heard and believed refused to enter in by an act of their will. And the reason why this is written to us is this can be you. This can be me. That we heard the gospel. We responded to the gospel. We believe God is real and that Jesus is the Messiah. Yet there is a rest for us we have not entered because of unbelief. The word they heard did not profit them. Why? Because it was not mixed with faith in God. We put a lot of emphasis on hearing the truth, on speaking the truth, for good reason. But a person can hear the truth, believe the truth, but it does not always profit them, right? It's like throwing all the ingredients of a cake together in a pan without mixing it and putting it in the oven. What kind of cake do you suppose that will be? It will not be a cake. That's one thing I can tell you. It's like dust on the bottom, a couple of eggs on the top. It's not a cake. It's not rising, it's not spongy, it has no resemblance to a cake at all. If you spend any amount of time on roads, you've seen uh, cement mixers, right? Those big trucks with that rotating barrel. It has a few basic ingredients. In concrete, you've got water, sand, aggregate, and Portland cement. And it's important that the cement, which is the binding agent, it is thoroughly mixed with everything or else the chemical process is not going to work. If you were just going to lay down some sand, chuck some rocks, some Portland cement, water, and just walk away, that would be unsuitable for building. It would be a mess. It would be an expensive waste. So it has to be mixed. So you can hear the truth. You can believe the truth, but unless it's mixed with faith, it does not profit you. Because faith, genuine faith, what is evidence of it? Obedience. Because they did not believe God, that he was bigger than the giants, that he could help them, that he could provide for them, they refused to enter in and said, God, you're just looking to kill us. Because of unbelief, they would not obey. And they fell short of God's rest. Continuing on, Hebrews 4, verse 3. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he had spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, again he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time, as it has been said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. God is a place of rest for us to enter into that's free from agitation, fear, worry, trouble. It's a place of peace and repose and abiding in the Lord. 
God had a rest for those people, and it was already completed. It was just for them to enter in at this stage, but they refused to enter in because of unbelief and consequent disobedience. The implication is they didn't enter, but there was still a rest to be entered into. And that's why in David, which is many, many years after, and we know that the first generation, they fell in the wilderness. The second generation, they entered the land. And yet in David, hundreds of years later, there's still a rest today. So that's the point the writer's saying. He's saying, we know they entered into the, the land, but the rest that God has is more than just owning land or being stewards of it, but there's a rest for us to enter into. And God, when he rested, it was because the work was completed and finished. That's very important for us to understand why God rested. It wasn't that he's like, whoa, it's been a hard six days created the heavens and the earth. I need a breather. Just got to, whew, take a rest like we would take a rest. No, he rested, he ceased from labor because it was done. It was finished. It was complete. There was no more creating to do. Genesis 2.2, it says, On the seventh day God ended his work, which he had done, and rested on the seventh from all the work which he had done. The people didn't enter in because of disobedience. Have you ever considered how disobedience springs from unbelief in God and his word? That's one of the causes of it. It's not unbelief in the existence of God, but denial of who God is and what he said and what it means to you. The people were delivered from slavery in Egypt. They could not enter the next did enter. Now, it's no coincidence Jesus was given that name. Joshua is God saves or God is salvation. And you may wonder, well, Jesus, how do we come to that name? Well, it's the same name, but Yehoshua in Greek is Iesus. Since the New Testament Greek is translated into English, we say Jesus, but it's the same name. God saves so through the law, they could not enter that rest, but through Jesus, he leads us into that rest, the rest that he has for us. Now, the passage that's quoted here is in Psalm 95, 7, and 8. It says this, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness." Because this exhortation was given in the time of David, there is still a rest because he's talking about today. Today is the day of rest. And this rest is more than abiding in a land or going to heaven someday. The command is not to harden your heart today because the potential of falling short to enter God's rest is very real. It's relevant for me and you right now. Because we connect belief to knowing the truth about God from his word, we put a large emphasis on teaching from the Bible, teaching God's word. But gaining knowledge is not a substitute for faith. Sometimes we can make that mistake. We, we think that the more we know, well, the stronger our faith is, but that's not true. Faith is strengthened by exercising it, kind of like a muscle. Hearing with faith, Without faith does not profit. You can hear the truth. And knowledge alone, it puffs us up. It makes us proud and arrogant. I think a great picture of this rest that God is talking about 
It's like you can see it in a little child that cannot even speak in complete sentences yet. It's like this little girl doesn't know her mother's maiden name. She doesn't know where her mother went to college. She couldn't tell you any of those things. She couldn't tell you how tall she is in centimeters. Um, if she, she wouldn't know how many kilos she weighed. Like, not that a mother would want her child to know that necessarily. Um, but that child who, knows, who doesn't know these facts knows she has a mother, knows what she looks like, and knows where to find her when she's in trouble. And when she drops that, toe, drops that toy on her foot, she will start wandering the house crying because she's looking for the one who has, who has helped her before. And so she'll reach up when she sees her and believing that she can make things better. And so that picture of that little girl, tears in her eyes, but a smile on her face when she's being cuddled is one of rest. As like, it's okay now. It's all right. Doesn't know all the facts but knows that she has a mother. And we know in Christ we have a father. We have a savior. We have someone who loves us. Someone who has given everything for us. This is belief. This is the kind of belief that you only need to know a little to act on. And as kids get older, what happens? They lose this total reliance on their parents and it shifts elsewhere. They become more independent. They look to friends or even to randoms for approval. They isolate themselves from their parents. They're not even willing to share something that's happening in their life or what's troubling them. They may believe their parent. They know they have a mother and a father, but they don't believe their parents can help them or even listen to them. And so they isolate. They grow restless because they're not content and they're looking to move on. Can we be like this as we grow in knowledge, but not in faith? We grow in knowledge, the security God's given us, the provision, the protection. It leads to us feeling entitled and living an autonomous life from God who loves us. That teen, that adult, they believe in the existence of their parents, but they don't rely and trust on them like they once did when all they could do was believe. So brothers and sisters, let's be those who believe. Let's beware lest there be a hard heart in us. Let's not harden our hearts because of the things we encounter, but to have that heart of belief of who God is and how much we need him. Continuing in Hebrews 4, verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Hebrews were led into Canaan, took possession of their inheritance. They built the temple. Solomon built the temple. Yet there remained a rest for God's people. They observed a Sabbath rest every week, but there remained a rest for his people. This rest is not taking a break from activity. As relaxing as a weekend away or a holiday may be, that's not the rest spoken of here because that has an end, right? We, as the holiday starts to come to an end, we're like, oh man, I'm going to have to go back to work, I have to get up early, I have to sit in traffic, all things we have to do. There's an end to it. 
But there's no end to the rest we have through Jesus Christ. And where does this rest come from? It's that we know we are complete in him. We often go through life feeling like there is something unfulfilled. There's something we need to do. There's something we need to to earn. There's something we have to have to feel satisfied and content. But that rest is only found in Christ through faith in him. That we are complete in him. Verse 10, it says that one who has entered his rest has also ceased from his works as God did from his. After six days of labor, God rested on the seventh. Jesus, he labored to seek and save the lost. He atoned for the sins of the world on Calvary. He rose from the dead and he has sat down in heaven. So the work is done. It's complete. And we're complete in him. And so the one who has entered into God's rest no longer works to be accepted by God, who seeks to find favor from God in the things they're doing. So they they stop trying to earn forgiveness. Stop serving or giving with the hope of being blessed in return. They stop sacrificing in order to measure up to what someone else thinks they should do or to impress others. Those who have entered God's rest, they stop seeking to gain righteousness by trying to follow the law. See, we could never follow it. They understand they're no less holy than when they thank God and eat a steak than when they're fasting and praying because God has made them holy by grace through faith. So by faith in Christ, we, we, are, we lack nothing. We are complete in him. We rest from those works. It's the motive behind those works that's the issue. We've been saved for good works. We ought to do them. But we shouldn't do good works motivated, motivated by an attempt really a hopeless attempt to try to measure up to God's standard, to try to please him or impress other people. The, Gentile, the, the early Gentile church were often pressured by the Jewish community to become like Jews, to be circumcised, to keep the law, to keep Sabbaths. And many in their desire to please God, they were swayed to start doing these things to measure up not realizing they had a rest in Christ they were to enter into. They judged their standing with God by what they did or didn't do. Have you ever done that? You're like, man, it's a good thing I didn't die yesterday. I'd have certainly gone to hell. But I've cleaned up my act since then. So now's the time, God. Take me now because if, you, if I stick around here too much longer, something's going to happen. I'm going to say the wrong thing. I, I knew a guy who, who was like, I just need to be sure if I'm falling to my death that I'm just repenting for all my sins because if I say a cuss word on my way down, I'm going to hell. Like, where does that come from? Is that in the Bible? Like, what, what of the work Jesus has done for you? Is it because you don't cuss now that you're going to heaven? Or is it because he saved you? Because he's washed you clean? Because you're complete in him? You're born again. You're adopted into his family. That's why you're saved. It's not because of what you do. It's because of what Jesus has done. That's why you're saved, and you rest in that. You don't need to worry. You don't need to be afraid about measuring up or not because God has said it, and it's in his word. Paul wrote in Colossians 2, verse 16 and 17, So let no one judge you in food or drink, in regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, 
which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Now, we read that as Gentiles, and we, we use this to justify our liberty. But think of it hitting a Jew who's been raised under the law, who's kept Sabbaths, who's strictly observed the uh, kosher diet, where it says, So now let no one judge you in food or drink, or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. The law demanded obedience to be acceptable before God. It did. A person who did not keep a feast, they were cut off from the people. Someone who didn't wash their hands before and after eating, they were deemed a gross sinner. One one who would be cut off from the people, they'd be excluded from worship. They were unacceptable. They were cast out of the commonwealth of Israel because they did not heed God's word. So when they're saying, don't let anyone judge you in those things. It's like you are complete in Christ and what he's done. To realize that acceptance and favor from God, it's received by faith only, that was a cause for great rejoicing among the Hebrews. Like, wow, I'm saved, I'm redeemed, I'm forgiven because of what God has done for me. Not because I've earned it or I'm entitled to it as a son or daughter of Abraham. What God has done on the inside impacts more than what we see on the outside. And we can often measure how we're going by what we're doing or not doing when God's looking at the heart. Hebrews 4.11, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an a, give account. Having believed, we are to be coming to God, be diligent to enter into the rest provided by exercising faith in Christ. Hearing mixed with faith results in obedience. We've arrived at a passage of Scripture often quoted, rarely in context with the whole passage. Notice that verse 12 begins with four, so it's connecting to the previous thought. Everything that has been said has been building to this point. People were hearers of God's Word. They were not doers. The immediate impact of this passage, it shows us how God's Word is able to probe our hearts to discern the motives of the people who read it, who heard it. People who heard God's word, uh, he brought out of Egypt. They heard the word, yet disobeyed. It exposed their unbelief. God said it, they disobeyed, and his word, it showed their unbelief. It's like the scriptures wielded by the Holy Spirit, it's able to probe. It's able to cut open. It's able to expose what's inside that other people can't see. And the point is so that you will see what God sees. That's one of the reasons why this is how it works. Jesus, he's the word of God. He knew the hearts and the thoughts of all people. We see that consistently. He would say, why do you think such things? And they're like, huh? How does he know that? God's word is living and powerful. The Greek word energes, which means effective. 
it's compared to a two-edged sword. It cuts both ways. It, it cuts the one who's speaking it and also the hearer. It, it has an impact on both. It can convict and convert. It can condemn and destroy. When swung, a two-edged sword, it really cuts in all directions, right? Because it's, it's going to do some damage. It's able, by its design, to pierce a target. We read of God's word at work in the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. It says, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because you, when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. God's able to divide what's flesh from the spirit. Uh, the the Words of soul and spirit, they both speak of the inner man. Really, the Bible is the only one who can discern, that can discern this uh, because sometimes in Scripture, those words are used interchangeably. I like what the Bible Knowledge Commentary had to say. It says, The inner life of the Christian is often a strange mixture of motivations, both genuinely spiritual and completely human. It takes supernaturally discerning agents, such as the Word of God, to sort these out and to expose what is of the flesh, right? You could divide a body in two and not find a soul. You can do an autopsy and examine the brain and you can't find evidence of a single thought there, right? There's no recording. There's no like, oh, let's see what was the deleted content. There's a footprint here. No, you can't see it. But the Bible, God's word is able to do that. It is able to penetrate. It is able to reveal what's hidden to make your inner motives and intense, your thoughts laid bare, even as a sacrifice was examined not only the outside, but the inside. So that's really the imagery that's here. It's like when a sacrifice was offered, the animal would be divided. And they were to look if there were like any, an, an extra limb or if there were scabs or obviously the animal was ill. But if you were to cut it open and find a cancer or something, it'd be like, okay, no, this animal is not okay for offering to the Lord. It's now been exposed, and that's what God's Word does to us. Maybe that's why we hesitate to read it at times, because God is going to probe. He's going to analyze. He's going to reveal something about you that, like, you're doing that not because you trust me, but because you want to please that person. Or because you, you do that or you don't do that, or you're hiding this, or there's hypocrisy here. Like the cancer of hypocrisy, it is apparent through the word of God. He makes it clear. We see a deed and interpret it. Like that wasn't very nice. That wasn't very polite. But God looks at the motive. He sees inside. McGee wrote this. The Greek word for discerner actually means critic. We have today many critics of the Word of God. However, the Word of God is the critic. It criticizes you. It criticizes me. No man is in a position to sit in judgment on the Word of God. Verse 13, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God's Word is able to discern what no man can know. Because the heart is deceitful above all things and dreadfully wicked. Who can know it? Well, God knows it. And God's word exposes it, not to just humiliate or to embarrass us, but that we might repent 
Stop hardening our hearts in unbelief and choose to obey him in faith. That word opened in the Greek, it's the root word of our word trachea. It's the idea of grabbing by the throat and exposing it to cut it. You're like, oh, I was like reading this going, hmm. These are some pretty strong terms that are being used here. This is really, you know, to, to seize by the throat or neck, to expose the gullet of a victim for killing, to lay it bare. So it's like you're on the executioner's block. God's word is able to show you that thing, that area where we need to repent. And again, God does not seek to destroy us since he sent his son to save us. It is for our healing and restoration, just like a scalpel is skillfully used by a surgeon to remove a dangerous cancer. It's, it's for the, if you just saw the incision, you're like, what are you, some crazy person? No, he's not a murderer, he's not a crazy person. This surgeon, he or she is wanting to expose what needs to be removed so that there can be a restoration of health. So a person can return back to family life and to work and to avoid death. And that's why God exposes our hearts. That's why he exposes our thoughts. We, we can run from this, but God does it because he loves us. He shows us our unbelief so that we will confess it and believe, put into practice the things we know. And by his grace, God doesn't wait until the day of judgment, until there's no chance for us. He tells us now so there's an opportunity for us to repent and to turn and to do what pleases him. Not because we're looking to get something out of him, but in response to receiving his love and forgiveness. That piercing, revealing word of God, it works in us so we can enter into the rest God has for us by exposing hidden sins, thoughts in our hearts and minds to repent of. Don't we need to know we're missing the target before we'll make the necessary adjustments? Years ago, we had a house in Kellyville, and uh, it had, like, the most inaccurate thermostat ever. Has anyone else had that problem in their oven? Like, the thing was unbelievable. I was, like, burning things. I'm like, okay, I know I've done my conversions from Celsius to uh, Fahrenheit to Celsius. I, I'm pretty sure this recipe, like, I'm confident in it. And then I bought another thermometer that went inside the oven, and I found out that the dial was 40 degrees off. I'm like, okay. It's way off. And then when I put the digital thermometer in, I could see that there were swings of like 30 degrees. It would get super, super hot, and then it would drop down. And then super, super hot, and then drop down. So I'm like, ah, oh, this oven. It's not consistent at all. No wonder I'm not getting consistent results. So the second thermometer, it helped me to better use the oven for baking. God's word, it's able to discern what we can't. We just have that one dial of the flesh. We're not able to really tell what's going on inside. But God, he's like, this is what's happening in your heart right now. This is that bitterness that the Bible warns us against. This is that hardness of heart that's been developing because I'm not meeting your expectations. And we go, oh, so it's, I am off. My thinking is wrong. The way that I feel, is it justified? And like we could say, yeah, my, my oven needs calibration. We can put it in like a gentle way. But basically, the oven was completely off. It wasn't just misinformed or ignorant. It was like our hearts are downright sinful. 
It's not like, well, I, we, we may let ourselves wriggle off the hook, but the Bible has us by the throat. And he's saying, no, this is the truth. And we're like, no, no, it's not really. I mean, try to evade. But God, he discerns. There are ways that we think about God, ways we think about life and prosperity and about others that are just plain sinful. Sinful. And God, in his grace, he shows us where we're wrong, that there's more than 40 degrees between our inner temperature and what that dial says, like there is a problem. And we need his word to help show us what we need to change. Like, okay, if I'm making that, I'm going to back it down 25 degrees or 30. That's where I need to be. And when that person does something that offends you, we look to the scriptures to receive guidance, and then we realize that the way I've been dealing with conflict is totally wrong. I've been avoiding it. I've been hating that person. I've been bitter. And only God's word is able to discern this and to reveal it to us in truth. So we're not being guilted into it. We're being enlightened of the reality of what's inside us. That, yeah, I did lose my temper. I have been worried. I have been angry without a cause. That lust is still burning. Yeah, I don't do this thing anymore. But the problem, the heart is still wrong. Lord, wash me, cleanse me, change me more. I want to be more like you. God's given you a new heart if you're in Christ, but, you know, new things are not maintenance-free. Wouldn't it be great if it, they were? You know, get a new house, maintenance-free. Get a new car, maintenance-free. Get a new kid, maintenance-free. No. There is always maintenance with new things. We need a lot of words that start with R, the R-E, redemption, revival. So revival is something that was alive, but now it's no longer alive. So it needs to be revived. It needs to be brought back. We need renewal. We need redemption. Because we are far off from God. We've believed in him, but our hearts are hard now. So we have to plow up that fallow ground of our heart. Trust him again like we once did. Like that little child that reaches up and just says, please help me not why you deserve to be helped, not what you think should happen to that other person or to you. We cannot make ourselves acceptable by works of the flesh. We are only acceptable to God because he has received us when we repent and trust in him. Finishing up in Hebrews 4.14, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We see now an introduction to Jesus being our great high priest. This thought's going to be developed more fully over the next three chapters. That Jesus, who's greater than angels, He's greater than Moses, being God's son. He's gone into heaven. He sat down. He has atoned once for all by his own sacrifice for the sins of sinners. That salvation is finished. When people would bring their sacrifices to the temple, that priest who offered the sacrifice didn't know the hearts or the thoughts of the people bringing it. They would only know what they were told or if God had given them a prophetic word or something. But Jesus, he knows the hearts. He knows our thoughts. 
the, the high priest was not tempted the same way that person bringing their sacrifice had been tempted. But Jesus was in all points tempted, yet without sin. We've talked about how important it was that Jesus was a human being. He had to be a man. God's given dominion over the earth to mankind. And that he was able to die then as our substitute and offer that sacrifice that paid for our sin so we can be glorified, adopt into his family, and rule and reign with him. Please turn to Hebrews 2, verse 17 and 18. This is, uh, because of chapter and verse, uh, for us, it's like, it's good for us to remember this is in context of what's being spoken of so far. So a chapter back, Hebrews uh, 2, 17, 18. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Jesus suffered temptation and has overcome. We overcome through him, so he's able to help us in everything. Any temptation you face, and uh, on your own, we cannot, even in one point, completely resist that temptation, right? So you may know one area that you are weak. You say, yeah, I've been tempted and I have fallen in that area. I have sinned. And if you think of temptation as a force applied to an object, uh, if you have a knowledge of physics, you know that uh, like, there's an amount of force needed to be applied to actually move this. So if you think of this force being applied as temptation to you, it's like I can push on it gently, but if I apply more force, at some point I can move it. Now, that's just in one point, but imagine this being fixed, that I could push on this with all my might, and yet it does not move. And the cool thing is, is that Jesus, he had all temptation, all points tempted, yet without sin. One point, it's like, this is me getting moved. But Jesus, all points tempted, did not move. So it's like all the force of temptation was placed upon him, and he didn't move. He felt the full brunt of it all. And so he is able to help you in that point where you're tempted. Our strongest resistance proves insufficient. But Jesus, he remained upright. He stood firm. He embraced his Father's will. He trusted him. And this is a reality we can rest in. Not like, well, it, it seems to work for him, but will it help me? Look at what Jesus has done. See who he is. Verse 16 concludes. This is the conclusion now. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In light of what we've talked about, what sort of help do we need? It's not to get a new job, which is perfectly valid. It's not for healing. These are all things that we could be praying and very good to pray for, but it's not that promotion. It's not even salvation for others. This is that we would enter into the rest that God has for us. That having been pierced by the word of God, we would confess our sin and we would, uh, through Christ, overcome temptation, even as he did, because we trust him, because we obey him. 
acknowledge our sin, our weakness and inability to help ourselves. Say, God, I can't help myself in this temptation. I cannot change these thoughts that I'm having and these feelings that I'm battling. And you're fighting this war like that intelligence officer who didn't realize the battle was over, that the war had finished, that there was a rest to enter into. And we have that in Christ right now. And it's for you. We all have needs. God knows what you need better than you do. It's like a newborn baby has no idea of the need to draw that first breath of oxygen. Baby doesn't know that. A little child has no idea how dangerous it is to run across a road to fetch a ball because there's traffic. Like they don't understand, right? You and I have no clue about the wretchedness that's in our hearts and in our minds that God's privy to and that his word exposes. We don't realize that we're in the wilderness of unbelief when there remains a rest for us. And this is the rest that I am just proclaiming through his word to you today, that there remains a rest for you. There remains a rest for you to enter into today. We need God to point out in our lives what thoughts and motives are of the flesh and what's of the spirit. So I ask you, in the name of Jesus, are you experiencing the rest that God has promised you? Are you willing to admit that you're on the outside looking in? You're fighting to get in. But that's, it's not through the works of the flesh. It's by the work of the Spirit and what Jesus has done. And if we can't see our need for mercy, it says find mercy to help in time of need. If we can't see our need for mercy, what, why do we want grace? Why do we need it? Let the word of God you've heard today be mixed with faith so it will profit you and the body of Christ. Verse 6, it explains those to whom the good news was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. So our call, therefore, is to believe, to obey, to enter God's rest. We don't deserve an audience with the Most High, but He graciously offers it to us. And we can boldly enter. It's like, if you knew, when you find out something that somebody said or did, you're like, oh, and you kind of recoil from them. But God knows it all about you. Nothing is hidden from his sight. And you can boldly come before him to find mercy and grace to help in time of need right now. So let's do that. I encourage you guys to seek the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we do boldly enter the throne room of grace not to obtain our desire out of selfishness or ambition but in humility and repentance, Lord, that there are areas in our hearts and minds that are wicked and sinful. And I pray you would show us our need to repent. Lord, thank you that there is a rest for us, that we're not disqualified from rest because we're sinners. It's because of what Jesus has done. The door has been opened wide to that rest we can experience today. A rest from fighting the war that you have already won, that you've given us new life, You've given us hope of salvation. You've given us your truth. And you've given to all a measure of faith. And I pray, Lord, we would put our faith into practice. That we would walk in your ways and seek to glorify and honor you. That when you uh, lead us, we would follow you. That we would believe your word and walk in it. That it would be mixed with faith, what we've heard today. That we would have that 
rest in the assurance and the complete work of Jesus on the cross. And thank you, Lord, that you have, while we remain on earth, works for us to do so you might be glorified. And it's you who does them through us. Thank you, Lord, for just your mercy and grace, how much we need you. I pray in all of us there would be that heart of belief that draws near to you, that rejoices in your salvation and celebrates your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.